Welcome to the third of four weekend services at New Spring, and happy Valentine weekend. And if any of you guys just sort of got the news right now, you're late. It happened yesterday. Um, But before I get into the message today, I just want to give you a a heads up on what's coming now. We are in between series. Last week, we finished change, and next week, I'm going to be bringing the most exciting series I've ever brought in my whole career. And I'm serious. Guys, you're laughing at me, but I'm really, really serious. This is just totally, totally important. Um, what's, what's interesting about Say Yes, which is where we're headed, is uh, it's distinct. Change was all about changing our person, ourselves. And Say Yes is all about changing the world around us. And I'm really excited because uh, we're living in a culture right now where people are afraid to say yes. The economy's tanked. We got the stimulus thing going, and people don't know is that a good idea, is it a bad idea? You know, is it time to buy a car? Is it time to buy a house? Should I take my money out of the bank? Should I get back in the market? You know, should I just, you know, dig a hole and crawl in it and pull the lid in there for me? And so everybody's kind of tentative, and people are afraid to say yes. Uh, we're going to be talking about four impulses that it is great to say yes to. So if you're ready for some good news in a tough economic year, then I'm really excited about the series that begins next weekend. It's called Say Yes. And we're going to have a wonderful time. So this is uh, a week, a kind of week off between series for me. And, and I'm not even sure that what I'm about to do is a sermon. I guess we'll check it out when we get through and you can evaluate and see. We'll, we'll, think, we'll know what it was when I get through with it. But um, today, and with this being Valentine weekend, I have something really, really important that I want to share with you. And I'm just going to talk from, from my heart. Um, and, and I don't know, the moment I set this up, I don't know that there'll be some of you who are sort of like me, maybe some of you who are not like me, but I, I wrestle with something. I am a very driven person. Um, I evaluate all the time what I'm doing. And one of the things that I, I had to let you know is I am a real closet perfectionist with, uh, with just myself. I'm not that way with other people. People always tell me, wow, Mark, it's a wonderful series, and I'll, I'll like watch the DVDs, and I'll watch them over and over, and, and I always think to myself, I could not stand to watch one of my messages. That's true. I can't listen. There's only one series that I've done through the years that I can listen to, and it was done 10 years ago. That's a fact. And a lot of that's just I am so driven and, and so hard on, on myself, and I wouldn't change that. I wouldn't change that because I, I really strive for excellence. And some of you, you have that, that bent, you have that personality, and, and you know what I'm talking about. And there's a lot of good aspect to that. But there's one downside to it, and it's this. In my relationship with God, I am so performance-oriented. And I don't mean that in a sort of theatrical sense. I mean just in, in, in doing my best that I'm so hard on myself, I can wonder how, how God feels about me. Anybody else? I mean, don't raise your hands, but anybody else like that? I mean, I, I know that God loves me. In fact, I grew up in church. My dad was a pastor in Texas, and, and probably my first memory that was relational to God at all was a song that I sang when I was a really, really small child. And that song was, Jesus Loves Me, This I Know. Anybody else sing that song? I mean, Jesus Loves Me. And so I know, theoretically, I know theologically, I know, you know, it's part of my doctrinal repertoire that God loves me. And I've been talking, you know, and doing messages since I was 16, pastoring since I've been 20. I tell people all the time, God loves them. Do I believe it? Yeah, I believe it with all my heart. But my problem is, there's sometimes a difference between believing something to be fact and actually feeling the love of God. Because, see, here's the deal. We live in a culture when, where, where love is sometimes handed out and then sometimes taken away. And some of you have experienced that either in a family relationship, a love relationship, maybe with friends. 
at some point, someone said, I love you, and then they took it off the table. And in our culture today, there, it's like people have a love threshold. As long as, you, as long as you don't screw up enough, we love you. But then it's like there's this threshold, there's this place where we do enough dumb stuff and someone says, I used to love you, but I don't love you anymore. In a culture where 50% of marriages end in divorce, that is in play. I mean, we, we live in a culture where relationships shift and change. I mean, in my father's era, you know, if a person went to work for a company, a corporation, if they were faithful and worked hard and did their best, they could work at that corporation all their life. But that's pretty much, that's pretty much a gone deal. Because we, we live in an era today where you can go to work one day, have a job, next day you can go to work, and you don't have a job here anymore. So the question that I sometimes, you know, even wrestle with, not from a factual standpoint, but just from a feeling standpoint, it, it, how does God feel about me? Does God have a love threshold where I can mess up enough stuff to where God says, okay, that's it, I'm out, I used to love you, but you messed up enough to where I don't love you anymore, or I don't love you the same? That's my question for all of us here today. You know, how does God feel about us? Now, what happens with us when we, when we have that question, we may not articulate it, and like I say, we may give the party line all the time saying, yeah, I know God loves me, God loves you, God loves me. Well, what happens when we don't feel that love is that we start trying, just like people do in human relationships, we start going down all the wrong roads trying to find love in all the wrong places. You guys hear me say many times, I hate religion. This is one of the reasons why I do, is that when people don't feel God's love, often they will try religion, thinking, okay, I'm going to learn the rules here. I'm going to learn the teachings, and I'm going to, like, gin myself up here to obey all this stuff, and maybe if I do, and if I give enough money, and I, I do all the right things, and I don't mess up, maybe if I go through this religion, and I get to the graduation point, then God will love me. How many of us have tried that? Been there, done that, like the old saying goes, got the shirt. And it's like, I'm out, man. I can't perform. I can't, I can't reach expectations. Other people, you know, it's like, well, I'm going to just try to become this better person. I'm going to try to, like, be everything I'm supposed to be. And maybe if I get there, maybe just maybe God will love me. And then I think there are people, you know, I have, I have friends who are atheists. And, and uh, oftentimes what I hear when I listen to them talk, there's a sort of anger and a frustration. And oftentimes, I don't think they're really atheists. I think there's this sense of, I know I've got all these issues. Surely God can't love me, so I'm going to flip him off before I leave the room. So how do we get to the place where we feel God's love? How can we get to the place where, we, where God really loves us unconditionally and fully? I, I spent a few days in Texas last week, and, you know, I've been gone for 24 years nearly, and, and one thing that I discover when I go back home is how funny the people talk. <laughs> they really do. I mean, I've been here, like I say, 24 years, my accent's kind of flattened out, and they're just expressions I don't use anymore. I still say y'all, but they're just a lot of expressions I don't, and so when I go back home and I listen to people talk, <laughs> it's kind of funny. I was on my way to, uh, to the office of a guy that I was working with on a future project, and, and I stopped to get a soft drink at, a, at a, like a convenience store, 7-Eleven kind of thing. And, and I walked in, and, and I could see there was something kind of weird going on. There was a lady there with a cell phone out, and she had a piece of paper. And it was like everybody was sort of like around her. And, and I couldn't tell what was going on, but I got close enough to hear she was looking for an address. 
And she was asking, does anybody know where this street is? And I, w- I follow my GPS, and I'm like trying to find it. And I've driven up and down. I've been all, you know, up and down the highway, and I can't find it. You know, does anybody know where this street is? And nobody did. There were other customers in the store, and they were all kind of like grouping around her, trying to help her. And then everybody was saying, nah, never heard of that street. And the clerk behind the counter said, she said, I never heard of it. And, and she said, well, I, I followed my GPS, and I followed it right here to this corner, and I can't find it. And, and, and finally, she did something that really caught my attention. This gal just burst into tears and started sobbing. And then she, she said, my, my dog is out in the car, and my dog is dying, and I'm trying to find a particular veterinarian. And, and the girl behind the counter said, are you, you looking for the animal hospital? And she said, well, yeah. And I love what this, what this gal said. She said, honey, you're there. It's in the parking lot. I just love that. I thought I would have bring that home. Honey, you're there. For all of us who struggle to find God's love, what do I have to do to get God to love me? I just want to say to, to you today in my old accent, honey, you're there. And you don't have to do anything to get God to love you. You don't have to get any, do anything. There is an expression in the Bible that just absolutely warms my heart every time I see it. And many of you who were in Odyssey 08 and you read all the way through the Bible last year, you probably saw this expression. It's at least 120 times in the Bible God uses this. And I don't know what warms your heart, you know. I know mine. If I'm walking down the beach holding Mary Alice's hand watching the sunset, that warms my heart. Every once in a while, I'll get close to one of these new, new babies here at New Spring, and I'll reach out my finger, and that baby will grab my finger. That does it for me, man. <laughs> Um, or if I'm at Starbucks and I'm just sitting in the upholstered chair drinking a latte. Of course, paying $5 for the latte doesn't warm my heart, but just, you know, being there. But there's one thing that just really warms my heart. I'm like reading through the Bible, and bam, I hit this expression. And it's like, I love that. It just warms my heart. And that expression is unfailing love. If you read the Bible, especially our translation, you keep seeing this over and over today. Um, now, here's what I'm going to do for the message. Like I said, I'm not sure this is a sermon. I'm just going to talk to you for a few moments, and, and we'll see where this goes. I, with 120 times in the Bible, I wanted to cherry-pick three or four of these wonderful verses in the Bible that talk about God's unfailing love. Now, you know, when it's like when you're eating nacho chips and you can't just eat two or three? And you know what it would be like for me trying to find my favorite or favorites? I couldn't stop for a while. So I don't know how many of these I have, but I just want to like walk you through some of the places in the Bible where God talks about his unfailing love. This is a Valentine message from God to you this morning. Let's start with Psalm chapter 5, verse 7. David said, because of your unfailing love, I can enter your house. Anybody here ever have a hard time going to church? And it's not because you don't find it relevant or meaningful or enjoy it. It's like, I've done all these wrong things. You know, people say sometimes, I'm, I'm afraid to go to church because the ceiling might fall in on me. Well, you know how many of us feel that way, at least, or, you know, feel guilty or, or sinful? All of us do. But here's what David said. He said, because of your unfailing love, I can enter your house. He's saying, I don't, I'm not, you know, because here's the deal. If you go to church a lot, there are, you have friends who maybe don't know God, and they're thinking, wow, you must think you're something special to go to church all the time, and you know you don't. What is it that keeps you coming even though you're imperfect. You know God loves you. And that's what David said, because of your unfailing love, I can enter your house. Psalm 13, verse 5, David said, I trust in your unfailing love. Boy, isn't it hard to to know how to trust people today? 
You know, I don't know, I mean, no disrespect, I'm grateful for people that will put themselves in public life, but coming out of Washington, I don't know who to trust, do you? I don't know what to trust. And yet David said, I trust in your unfailing love. From the most famous verse, or excuse me, the most famous chapter of the Old Testament, Psalm 23, David writes, surely your goodness and unfailing love will pursue me or chase me all the days of my life, and I will live in the house of the Lord forever. The way David looked at it, life was just God's unfailing love chasing him all the way to heaven. I like this one, Psalm 25, verse 7. Do not remember the rebellious sins of my youth. Remember me in the light of your unfailing love. David said, Lord, when you look at me, don't look at me through the lens of all the screw-ups. Look at me through the lens of your unfailing love. In Psalm 31, verse 7, David said, I will be glad and rejoice in your unfailing love, for you've seen my troubles and you care about the anguish of my soul. David said, when I'm going through hard times, what gets me through is your unfailing love. Psalm 32, verse 10, many sorrows come to the wicked, but unfailing love surrounds those who trust in the Lord. Psalm 42, 8, each day the Lord pours his unfailing love out upon us. And um, Psalm 86, O Lord, you're so good, so ready to forgive, so full of unfailing love for all who ask for your help. Psalm 117 says, for he loves us with an unfailing love. The Lord's faithfulness endures forever. And my personal favorite, I know I've given this to you before, out of Joel chapter 2, where God says, don't tear your clothing in your grief, but tear your hearts instead. Return to the Lord your God, for he is merciful and compassionate, slow to get angry, and filled with unfailing love. He is eager to relent and not punish. Some of us grew up in a culture where we had the idea that God was eager to punish us. And yet the Bible says because of his unfailing love, he's actually eager to relent and not punish us. Strange thing in the Bible, though, in our translation. After all these verses, 120 at least, of the Bible saying God has unfailing love for us, we had a chapter kind of early in the Bible, at least in the New Testament, where it just stops. It's like after this, there really are no more verses that talk about God's unfailing love. In John chapter 1, there are two verses that talk about this. Verse 14, verse 17, and it's like it just stops. Let me read verse 14 to you. So the word became human and made his home among us. He was full of unfailing love and faithfulness. Who are we talking about there? Jesus. It's like Jesus is the final word on God's unfailing love. Throughout the Old Testament, God is saying, I have love for you, unfailing love. He's coming, my Savior, my solution, he's coming. It's like when Jesus got here, it's like the Bible said, this is all that we need to say about unfailing love. Last night I told the congregation that gathered here for the, nine, for the Saturday night service, I talked to them about um, a pastor who had made an announcement that the next weekend he was going to talk about God's unfailing love as a sermon. But when the people got there, the minister didn't say a word. Up on the stage was a portrait of Jesus on the cross. He took a candle and held the candle up to the crown of thorns. And then he moved the candle down to Jesus' hands that were nailed to the cross. And then he moved the candle down to his side where the spear pierced him. And then he moved the candle down to Jesus' feet which were nailed to the cross. Never said a word, that was the end of the sermon. I think the Bible is giving us the same message, that if you want to know if God loves you, does God love you with an unfailing love, all you have to do is see Jesus on the cross and realize how much God loves you and me. 
Well, for all of you who like deep, complex thoughts, you're probably not going to wrestle with today's message because I only have two thoughts for you, and they're extraordinarily simple. Here's the first one. God loves you. Now, I know we all know that. We tell other people. You know, we, we put it in wall hangings in our house. But today, I want you to get it into your, where you feel it. God loves you. you. say, but Mark, I have all these issues in my life. God loves you. You see, here's the thing. You know, love is hard to find today. For one thing, people are, are looking for somebody to love them. Love is really tough. But another reason why love is hard to find is um, all of us have faults. And like I said, there's this failure threshold. And oftentimes, love gets pulled off the table. This is why we're so reluctant for people to really know us. Guys, work with me for a moment. If you're in a relationship, if you're married, what would happen if your wife, if your girlfriend knew everything you've ever done? Everything you've ever said? Everything that you would have done if you didn't get arrested? (laughs) Now, let me ask you a question. Would that impact your relationship? I'm going to take a chance. I'm going to take a leap of faith here and say that in some of your cases today, if the person who is with you knew everything about you, it might be the end of your relationship today. Ladies, how about it? What if, what if your guy, what if your husband knew everything about you, everything you ever did, everything you ever said, every attitude you ever held, what you, all the things that you thought about him, what you would have liked to have done to him if it were legal? Would that impact your relationship? See, this is why we're, we're so careful to, to build these, you know, to build these, uh, you know, these covers for ourselves. And why we're often reluctant to let people really get in and know how we feel because we know what things are like today. We know how quickly love is pulled off the table. But the wonderful thing about God is the Bible says he, God knows everything about us. He knows the number of hairs on our head, which for some of us, it just keeps getting easier and easier and easier for him. He knows every thought that goes on inside of your head. God knows more about you than you know about yourself. God remembers more about you than you remember about yourself. And yet, knowing everything about you, God says he loves you. He loves you. We're going to talk now about the basis of God's love for us. And I'm going to use a Bible term that chances are you haven't used five times in the last week. It's the term atonement. And most of us know that's a religious term or it's a Bible term. And, and you know that in the Bible there was atonement. But the question is, what does the word atone or atonement mean? Literally, here's what it means. It means to cover. In fact, the first time in the Bible we see an idea of atonement was when Adam and Eve sinned. They realized they were naked. God evidently took skins of animals, and the Bible says he covered them. When the Israelites were in Egypt, and God was about to get them out and take them to the promised land. God gave Pharaoh 10 deals he couldn't refuse, and the final one was that there would be the death of the firstborn. And God came along to Moses and said, tell the Israelites, here's how they can avoid getting the death angel to pass over their house and lose their firstborn. God said, take a lamb. They would have that lamb for a Passover dinner. And God said, take the blood and cover the doorposts of the house with that blood. And God said, when the death angel comes by, If that blood covers the door, that family will be safe. There was the Day of Atonement, the most holy day in Israel, in which the blood of a lamb would cover the mercy seat or the top of the Ark of the Covenant. 
Here's what the Bible says about love. In 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 8, the Bible says, love covers a multitude of sins. If you love someone, you don't want all their flaws to be exposed. You know, guys, if you love your wife, you don't go to the office or go to the factory and tell everybody what a jerk she is because she did this dumb thing. Guys, if you love your husband, you don't get on the phone, call your friends, say, you know what stupid did? Or call your mom and say, did it again. That's not love. Love covers. Now, obviously, I'm not talking about abuse. I'm not talking about something that, that needs, to, needs to be dealt with. But I'm just saying that is the nature of love to say, okay, you know what? This person has flaws. This, this person, you know, doesn't live up to expectations sometimes. But I love them, and it covers. It covers. One more time, Peter said, love covers a multitude of sins. That's how God can still love you. He atones. He covers your sins and my sins. In Bible days, people did the same thing they do today. They get overextended. They borrow more money than they could pay back. And it wasn't like today where there are bankruptcy laws where you could save your house. You know, if you borrowed too much money, they could come take your house. In fact, it was so awful, they could come take your kids. And some of you are saying, they took my kids, they bring the kid back, you know. <laughs> but it was really tough. And Embarrassing. Because if you, if you borrowed more money than you could pay back, what, they, what your creditor would come and do is that he would come tack a parchment to your house, to the door of your house, where all the money you borrowed and the reasons you borrowed the money would be listed. It would be like having your mortgage or your visa bill nailed to your house where everybody could come by and look and see what you spent all the money on. But it was for a benevolent reason because what could happen is if somebody was about to lose their house or about to lose their children or about to have the creditor come take valuable possessions away, somebody who loved this family could come by this house of bondage and see this certificate of debt, and the person who loved them could say, hey, you know what? I'll take care of these debts. And the reason why they all had to be listed is something like our full disclosure laws that we have today because if somebody came by and said, I'll take care of all the debts, obviously they need to know what all the debts were. So here's, here's something cool. If, let's just say you had money that you borrowed and you couldn't pay back. You're about to lose your house, and all your debts are listed out there on the front door nailed to your house. If you had a friend who came by and decided he or she would take care of all your debts, you know what that person would do? They would go to that parchment, and they would flip it up and double it over so that nobody could see the debt anymore, and they would nail that folded parchment closed and write their name. So anyone who passed your house couldn't see anymore what you owed. All they could see is that somebody loved you enough to redeem your debt. I know I'm always joking with y'all about my favorite, but I'm just dead serious right now. There is a verse in the Bible that is my favorite verse. In fact, I've had it embossed on the cover of several of my Bibles. It's Colossians chapter 2. Now, it's verse 14, but I want to read verse 13 before we get to verse 14. In verse 13, the Bible says, You were dead because of your sins, and because your sinful nature was not yet cut away. Then God made you alive with Christ, for he forgave all our sins. Now, here's my favorite verse in the Bible. He canceled the record of the charges against us and took it away by nailing it to his cross. Do you get what's going on there with the story I just told you? 
I mean, it was like over us is this parchment of everything we've ever done wrong or ever will do wrong. And and what did that parchment mean? It meant we were a house of bondage with a certificate of debt, and we were going to hell for it. But along came Jesus Christ. He knew everything we ever did. He folded it over, and he didn't just nail it to the house. He nailed it to his cross. In fact, it was like taking your bill and my bill covering up everything we've ever done so that when God looks at you and me, he can love us because he can't even see what we've done wrong. It's been covered. It's been folded over. And it wasn't just nailed, like I said, to a house. It was nailed to the cross. Why is that significant? And this is why I love this verse so much. When a person died on the cross, what they would do is they would take another parchment and they would write the crime this person was guilty of. They would put it at the top of the cross so that when that person actually died, that price had been paid for that crime, they would take that parchment off the cross because no longer was there an outstanding debt. There's a lot of disagreement about what should go on top of Jesus' cross, because after all, he'd never done anything wrong. All Pilate could think of was that he said he, or that he was the king of the Jews, and he put it up there, and then the Jews came along and said, hey, he's not our king. And Pilate said, hey, leave me alone. What I've written, I've written. So there was conflict about what should go over Jesus' cross, but according to the Bible, the way God looked at it, what was on top of Jesus' cross was your bill and my bill. Covered. He said, but Mark, I did this. He said, well, Mark, I can't believe God could love me. I, I can't believe, I mean, I cursed his name. I, I slept with a lot of people that, I mean, I, I, Mark, I, can't, I just can't believe that God could love me. It's covered and nailed to the cross. God loves you. Number two, God's love never stops. There's a reason for that, reason for that word unfailing. How many of you have had love, but it failed? Can you remember the first time someone broke up with you? I mean, maybe it was like young love, but you know, you know. Next thing you know, they, they called you, wrote you, texted you, just showed up with somebody else. Isn't that a horrible feeling? And, and I'm not making light of it because some of you have been through it at the worst level where a husband, a wife, just one day said, hey, I'm out of here. I don't love you. And, I mean, is there any worse expression than I don't love you anymore? In 32 years of pastoring, I've stood beside many caskets and I've watched families and people say goodbye to loved ones. I honestly believe as difficult as that is, it's even harder to have a husband or a wife and sometimes a friend or a parent or a child say, I don't love you anymore. You know what God is saying with, when he says unfailing love? He's saying no matter what you do or where you go, there will never be a time, there will never be a moment where, where God will say, I don't love you anymore. Unfailing love. You know, well, Mark, what if I do this? Or what if this happens to me? I am so glad that God put a wonderful piece of of Scripture here on this very question of what happens, will God still love me if? If you were to come to me today and say, Mark, here's the deal. For the rest of your career, you can only speak out of one chapter of the Bible. Pick one chapter. You have to leave the rest of it alone. It wouldn't take me three seconds to tell you what that chapter would be. Romans 8. It is the mountain peak of Scripture. Basically, everything I would need to be talking about is in Romans chapter 8. 
It talks about who we are in Christ, how we should be living, what about prayer. But we get to the end of this incredible chapter, and it's like all these verses that all deal with one question. Is there a situation in which God would not love me anymore? So I'm going to read this out of the message because it was just clear language. But let's begin reading out of Romans chapter 8, verse 35. The Bible says, do you think anyone is going to be able to drive a wedge between us and Christ's love for us? Were you having a relationship? Somebody drove a wedge between you? Maybe they said stuff, they started ragging you, started, you know, dissing you, started saying bad things about you. The next thing you know, a relationship goes up in smoke because somebody drove a wedge between you. Maybe somebody else was trying to get your guy. Maybe somebody else was trying to get your gal, and they drove a wedge between you. Maybe you did something that drove a wedge, and it's like things are just not the same anymore. That's the question the Bible is asking. Is there anything that could drive a wedge between us and God's love for us? Let me continue reading. The Bible says there's no way. I like that. No way. Not trouble, not hard times, not hatred, not hunger, not homelessness, not bullying threats, not backstabbing, not even the worst sins listed in Scripture. What a great answer. Is there anything that can drive a wedge between us? And the Bible is saying, no, no way. Not even the worst sins in Scripture, but it's like the Holy Spirit doesn't stop there. He just keeps the bus rolling. Verse 38. I'm absolutely convinced that nothing, nothing living or dead, angelic or demonic, today or tomorrow, high or low, thinkable or unthinkable, absolutely nothing can get between us and God's love because of the way Jesus, our master, has embraced us. God loves me. God's love will never go away. I mean, the Bible's so clear. Nothing. Nothing can ever, nothing can, nothing you do, nothing anybody does to you, no circumstance that life brings. I mean, even if you lose your mind and you can't think clearly anymore, the Bible is saying nothing, nothing you could ever do would cause God to say, I used to love you, but I don't love you anymore. There is only one thing that can mess this whole deal up. do a lot of weddings, or at least I have in the past. I'm not able to do as many as I used to. But uh, there's one thing I kind of enjoy doing at rehearsals, um, because everybody's so uptight, you know, at rehearsal, and everybody's like, oh no, we spent all this money, it's got to be just right, and everybody's a little nervous and chewing nails and things, and so I try to get everybody calmed down. And so there's always a place in the wedding rehearsal where I make the speech. I always say, there's a, there are a couple, because everybody's worried, about, is something going to go wrong tomorrow? And I always say, there's only two places where this whole deal could break down. One is when the bride's dad is walking her down the aisle, and, and they get to that point, and I look down and say, who gives this woman to be wed? And if he doesn't give her away, that's it. <laughs> we all go back, drink punch, eat cake. That's, uh, that's it, man. I mean, I, <laughs> I just keep waiting there for something. You know, who gives this woman, you know, do you give this woman to be wed? Not to him. <laughs> you know? You crazy? <laughs> you kidding me? It could all break down. The other place where it could break down is so I look at that bride and say, will you have this man to be your husband? She says, nope, uh-uh. <laughs> Boy, it's game, set, match right there. You know, you think about everything that God has done to get you in a relationship with him to take you to heaven. I mean, he built you this wonderful world. He made you just like he wanted you. You think about the complexity of, of the human body, and, and then on top of that, he brought people into your life who love you, and, and then most of all, 
he did this marvelous thing. At some point in your life, whether today is the first time or it happened years ago, God sent somebody to tell you that he loves you. And he loves you unconditionally. And most of all, he put his one and only son on a cross to suffer unspeakable horrors in order to cover your debt. You know where it could all break down? It could all break down if you don't receive God's love. Hey, anybody here love somebody and they wouldn't receive your love? Maybe you loved a guy. Maybe he was your husband. And you loved him with all your heart. He would have done anything in the world to make him happy. And you told him that you loved him and you showed him that you loved him. And, and yet some, some point or at one point, he walked away. What's your next move? Maybe you love a gal and, and, and you know, she's your world. I mean, the sun sets and rises in her and you love her with all your heart. And you would, you would do anything for her, but she rebuffs your love and finds somebody else. What's your next move? And the answer to that question is, if you love someone and that person won't receive your love, whether it's a parent or a child or a friend, whatever, you can keep on loving that person, but there is no next move. If today, after all God has done, you say, mm-mm, what else can God do? That's why every weekend, no matter what I'm talking about, I end the service and I give you a chance to pray a prayer. The reason why I do that, the, the, the rationale that's in my head is this. I know every time I talk, people are listening to the talk and they're saying either, yes, I will have God's love in my life or no, I'm going to hear it, I'm going to walk away. But for those of you who have it, I want you to nail it down. I want you to receive it. I want you to act on it. I want you to do something to say, yes, I'm not going to just toy with this thing that God loves me. I'm going to receive his love. I'm going to receive the fact. And that's why I always tell you about Jesus dying, believing that Jesus died for your sins because that's the moment where your bill was folded in half and all your sins were covered up. That's why we do that. I'm going to do it now. It can't be that for the first time in your life, it's like really settled in that God loves you and what Jesus has done for you. And you're saying, no, I don't want to walk away. I want to receive that love. I want to accept Jesus as my Savior. I want him to be in my life. And I'm like the bride or the groom standing at the altar saying, I do, yes. I'm going to pray the prayer slowly. These aren't magic words. But if you mean them in your heart, God will hear your prayer. Let's pray. Dear Jesus, I know I've done wrong. But I believe you died to pay for my sins. I receive your love. Please forgive me and make me God's child. Thank you for keeping your word to me. In Jesus' name, amen. I know that happened in seconds. You can say, well, Mark, did something happen to me? Most important thing that ever happened in your life or ever will happen. 
And so because of that, I have a gift, and I talk to you about this every week. I have a gift I give to you. This is just some DVDs and great stuff to help you really expand on what happened in your life. It's free. It won't cost you anything. If you'll take your worship folder, you can tear it in half. There's a place in there for your name and address, and, a, and there's a little field where you can check the box that says, I prayed, prayed with you. If you did, you can drop that address and name in the offering bags or in the box, by the boxes by the back doors or at the bottom of the staircase, and I'll mail you this this week. I know it's the 11 o'clock service. It's more crowded, but you have just a few extra minutes. All you have to do is bring that card back to, and I'm pointing through the middle doors there, right beyond that, two zones called Guest Service New Springs Store. If you pray with me to receive Christ and you'd like to take this with you today, all you have to do is go back there. Nobody will embarrass you or mess with you in any way. All you have to do is say, I pray with Mark, and they'll give this to you, and you can take it home with you today. Because here at New Spring, guys, let me just tell you this. We'd love to have you part of our, be part of our church, but we're not trying to just recruit people to be part of New Spring. We want people to know that God loves them unconditionally and that Jesus has died to make us a home in heaven. That's what matters to us more than anything else. So, guys, I'm glad you're here. Looking forward to next weekend. We start the Say Yes series. I hope to see you back.